You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. A romp in the poison garden. Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McVenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so excited to welcome Lisa Perrin to the podcast. Lisa is the author of The League of Lady Poisoners, Illustrated True Stories of Dangerous Women. As you know, we absolutely love ourselves. Excuse me, you've got to say it like this. We absolutely love ourselves some tales of dangerous women and lady poisoners. That's how you say that line. Jen wrote that. And I totally flubbed it. We absolutely love ourselves some tales of poisonous women and dangerous women. So join us as we discuss lady poisoners throughout the ages. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. So what drew you to the topic of lady poisoners? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's everyone's first question. Is like, you seem like a nice lady. Why did you write a book about poison and murder most foul? And I think for the same reason, we're listening to a podcast about these topics. It's just, you know, profoundly fascinating. I think a lot of us have fallen down the true crime rabbit hole. And I think I personally love history. So where history and weird crimes overlap is one of my favorite topics. I also really appreciate focusing on women's history um, because so often the focus is just on what the men were doing. Um, at the time. So um, I think I stumbled into this topic sort of accidentally. Uh, A good friend of mine who knows me very well and knows how weird I am sent me an article about Julia Tofana. And it just says like 17th century woman poisoner confesses to killing 600 men with her poison or something like that is the the title. And I went, wowie, zowie, like what a gift. (laughs) And I just thought, holy moly, why don't I know about this? This seems like it's big news. Like, why isn't there more uh, talked about this? So I kind of started there and it led me to ask, are there more stories like this? And what is the connection between women and poison anyway? We seem to have one built into our cultural consciousness, but is that real and is it fair and is it true? And I think all of that forms sort of the thesis for the, for the book. What did you learn about why women poison? 
And is it true that poison is mainly a women's weapon? Because we've also seen that. Yes. Spectacular question. And um, I actually have this like in front of me because these are I have like a list of League of Lady Poisoner talking points because this is my favorite one that comes up and I wanted to have the right information in front of me. So, right. The question is, is it true? So many of these stories are that poison is the unhappy wives sort of secret weapon against, you know, sort of a cruel or bitter husband. And we see it in so many examples from popular culture. I ended up having to remove this from the introduction, but I just collected all of the pop culture references I could find to women poisoning someone. And there were so many. I think they just call themselves the chicks now, but like the Dixie Chicks had this song, Goodbye Earl, that was all about like, and it was just like a a fun country kind of pop song. And it just, everyone kind of accepts that story. But I think that's why it was so fascinating to find out the statistics actually aren't there. So I often quote Deborah Blum, who's a brilliant writer and has written many articles and books about poison. She wrote an article for Wired in 2013 called The Imperfect Myth of the Female Poisoner. And really what we learned from that is that poison is actually a gender neutral weapon. And when you look at the statistics, a greater proportion of poisoners are men. Men commit murder so much more than women. I think the statistics, excuse me, or something absurd, like men are responsible for a whopping 90% of all murders, according to the United Nations 2019 global study on homicide, that they use all weapons, including poison, more often than women do. And the statistics were actually that um, from the United States Department of Justice's report on homicide trends in the United States from 1980 to 2008, 39.5% of murders by poison were female and 60.5% were male. So it's actually not true, which at first I went, oh no, my thesis, this is what the whole book's going to be about. And then I thought, actually, I think it's more interesting that the numbers don't support this. And yet we still kind of universally accept it and think it's true. Why is that? And it ended up being a deeper study on why do we associate women with poison? You think it has to do with like the fear of women's agency and because women are so associated with domestic tasks, including like preparing your food and that kind of stuff that like poison is just like that innate fear of like ceding control to someone else you don't treat uh, with the same respect or dignity that you potentially should or definitely should. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. Uh, the, the fear of poison was more about fear of women and their agency and what they could do because there was this belief that women could not overpower a male in any circumstance. But poison was a situation where she could. And it wasn't about physical strength. And she had access because she was in this domestic role where she was handling all of the food and all the drinks and cleaning. And a lot of cleaning supplies can be toxic or poisonous. So uh, there's this wonderful quote I have in the introduction that like uh, the poisoning wife became like the specter in the house where men were just so afraid. But it also came at a time in like the late When this quote comes from is the late uh, 19th century when women are gaining more voting rights and more agency in their lives. And it all kind of times out really meaningfully together that it's really not about a fear of poison. It's about women who have control and can do what they want um, in a society where they've never had that ability before. So what did you learn about the women who did poison that you covered in your book? What did you learn about why women poison? Were there any common threads? Yes. Wonderful question. And I think What interested me the most was I kept finding these common threads. Um, And that led to the decision to organize the chapters 
not chronologically or geographically, because it's sort of a survey of women from all over the world and throughout time, but by these themes that I kept finding. Um, and those themes were, I'm going back to my own chapters, uh, professional poisoners, which is probably my favorite one. Yes. <laughs> we love a professional poisoner and that that was a job and the women were paid really well for this. Um, escape and defiance. That was probably one of the most meaningful and powerful ones. Women who use uh, poison to escape bad or dangerous or problematic situations. Uh, of course, there's money and greed. I think uh, definitely the impetus of life insurance payouts ended up having a big influence on uh, who was using poison and on whom. You're talking about my girl, Belle. <laughs> oh, oh, is that your girl? She's my girl, too. <laughs> I know. Her and Locasta. Oh, after my own heart. Um, <laughs> power and politics, anger and revenge and love and obsession. And I think when you really go into these deep, more deeply, they're, they're universal human themes. Like we all experience, you know, anger and have to deal with money and love and they're just sort of the challenges of being a, a human being so yes I think that those were themes that I just kept seeing over and over and I will say poisoning is often a, a crime of desperation I think we know the most famous cases or the women who were the most rich or powerful in their time but that does not necessarily reflect who the average poisoner really was even though those are the stories we know the best it was definitely most often a crime of desperation like I have no way out and this is the only thing I can think of. That plays really nicely into, you know, the two folk heroines that I really knew nothing about but fell in love with as I was reading through your book. And there there are more of them, but the two that I'm thinking of are uh, Julia Tofana uh, or the Angel Makers of Nagirev and what their stories tell us about being a professional poisoner and the uses for poison for personal protection. You know how Republicans are now agitating to eliminate no-fault divorce? <laughs> oh, my God. I, div I gained a newfound appreciation for divorce from doing this research. I did not appreciate what a gift that is to be able to leave a bad or abusive marriage that you're not trapped. Divorce is a good thing. Divorce is the mark of a civilized society. I don't know if I revered it that same way before, but what an important lever that you have that you can pull if you need it. I think there'd be more people alive <laughs> if, if they had had access to divorce in some of the situations I go over in these stories. Not to play into the trope that women are just all evil poisoners looking to poison their husbands, but, you know, Republican men should take note that it's either divorce or poisoning. <laughs> yeah, very black and white. <laughs> those, are the, those are the two options. Sometimes it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think those are some of the stories that I find the most fascinating. And like I said, learning about Julia Tofano was definitely the one who kicked all of this research off because how immensely fascinating that is. So she uh, lived in 16th century Italy. And there's so many legends about her and it's hard to know what exactly is true. Uh, but she sort of either studied with apothecaries or it's believed that her family were apothecaries and she got to study with them and she learned how to create her own namesake poison called Aqua Tofana. Um, and that basically she ran sort of a cosmetic shop, but there was one special vial that uh, was disguised to look like Mana of St. Nicholas, which was something many uh, Renaissance era women would have had on their vanities. 
basically a woman could come to her and say that she was in an abusive marriage and she had no way out. Their divorce was not an option in Renaissance Italy. The only way out was someone had to die if there was a bad marriage or a bad match. I mean, in a lot of Catholic countries, divorce still isn't an option, says the girl who grew up Catholic. It's an important reminder that that kind of desperation is real. And a lot of marriages were arranged. A lot of marriages were very young girls and very old men. Um, there was no, you didn't really get to pick your partner. So you didn't know who you were going to marry. You might know if they had a bad reputation or they left a string of, you know, dead wives behind them. But they could appear normal until they weren't. Oh, yeah. It was usually a financial arrangement made by the parents of, of the young woman with no thought to personal happiness or connection between these individuals. It was very much an economic transaction. And then you might have a situation where this man was particularly abusive and there was no recourse. Like you could not go to the authorities like you were your husband's property and he had the right to, to treat you that way, unfortunately. So women would go to Julia Tofana and say, I need some help. And she could kind of give them this secret vial of her aqua tofana and legend caught on and the stories went around the whole area and many women came to her and supposedly she was in business selling poison for 50 years before the papal authorities in Rome caught wind of her actions and ended up tracking her down but she definitely became a folk hero among the women of her community and there's a lot of legends that she had a daughter and she had her daughter and like this gang of wise women who were all part of these dealings. But eventually she was supposedly tortured and under torture confessed to that her poison was used to kill up to 600 men. You have to question anything that you get under torture, of course. Exactly. Get the pincers away. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and that's why I always give the caveat. This was given under torture. She, I, you might have, she could have said anything, you know, just in that circumstance. We just did an episode on werewolves where a lot of people were confessing to some wild things under torture and we're just like, yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, I liked the second part of your question also, which brought the angel makers of Nagi Rev which was um, uh, much later in Hungary uh, in sort of the 1920s. And it's, it's essentially the same story, just centuries later in another part of the world, uh, which is this small rural village in Hungary became the site of this big poisoning epidemic. And the women there felt there was such a plight of abuse by a lot of these alcoholic husbands of the time who were violent toward them that they started selling and exchanging poison amongst one another. Um, as a way to like free themselves from the abusive treatment. It, it, it is powerful and heartbreaking to see how this legacy of Julia Tofana uh, continues with the angel makers of Nagi Rev. And to read their stories is really heartbreaking. I don't think the women, I mean, I'm sure that's the thing. I'm sure there are some who took advantage of the situation because they had nefarious intent. But I think that there were some where you hear their testimonies in court about the abuse that they were suffering and how now they're free and they can't regret the the actions. And it's it's powerful. And poison gave them agency and a tool in a time and a place where they had none. So again, I never want to condone the poisoning. I never want to condone the murder, but I, I'm trying to get more context and to understand in more depth the nuances of why these women made the actions that they did. I feel like studying history and women's history in particular has absolutely led me to this place where this is like the Medea conversation I frequently find myself in, where it's like, yeah, I guess it's bad that she killed her children, but... <laughs> but, oh gosh. 
but it shows empathy and nuance that you're willing to like consider all of the other factors. I think a lot of these women end up becoming like cartoon villains because we just read the like the blurb of what they did and we don't get all of the context and all of the information about what was going on in the world and in their societies that may have led them to make this dark choice. And that's why this book and the work you're doing is so important. We had um, Dr. Emma Salvin on who talked about A Rome of One's Own. And she does very similar work, but it's about women in ancient Rome. Finding women's history, particularly the type of history you're looking at, is usually in the margins. It's in these salacious documents or very small mentions. And actually digging into it, finding out who these women were, why they made the choices they made, most likely, and understanding what's really being said here. That's a whole branch of history that we don't know anything about and we haven't been talking about. These people have often come off as just villains. When you actually dig into it and interrogate it and you're like, yeah, no, this is the person you went to when your husband was being horrible and they helped you. The reality is that this is something that's always existed. And having grown up very religious, very black and white, these are all women who would have been baddies. And the longer I do this podcast and the older I get, the more nuanced I'm like, no, they weren't. They were doing really important work. Again, I find it really funny that Julia Tifana called her um, her special, like disguised it as a St. Nicholas's Mana, the body of St. Nicholas. That kills me. <laughs> no, but I appreciate that so much. I think that's exactly what it is. And I feel the same way. As I get older, I realize nothing is black and white. Everything is shades of gray. I, I look, I, even outside of these stories, I hear news stories and I'm like, this is just one side. There's so many sides to every story and nothing is that simple. And I think that's important just in terms of making good decisions in, in life and being a human being. Like I always tell my students, I'm a teacher, do your own research, come to your own conclusions. An informed decision is the best decision. So, and I, and I believe that. You couldn't see me acting it out. I'm like waggling a finger. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Locusta is a podcast favorite. We covered Locusta extensively in our early seasons. I did the episode and it was one of the, uh, I think it was one of our first hour-long podcast episodes. And it was just so much fun. I found myself falling into this rabbit hole of like what people used as poison in ancient times and then Locusta's story and just really getting into that. It was such a thrilling avenue to explore. What was it like for you researching her and getting to see her illustrated? Yes. So, so fun. So actually, um, in my my book, she is the first story like we have. I have like a little poison primer that introduces all the different types of poisons and a little history about it. But I wanted to start with her. I, I think she's such an amazing place to begin this conversation. Again, I see this through line from Locusta to Julia Tofana to the angel makers of Nagirev sort of being these women who held this key to like solving this problem. And you just had to know where they were and how to seek them out. And that she also had like her own school of poisoning at the end. I think like are all of these connected that they all learned from like the teacher before them? Does it go all the way back to Locusta in ancient Rome? It goes further back. I'm sure than that. I'm sure it goes back further than that. I think there's been poisoning as long as there's been people. <laughs> uh, and then people figured out things were poisonous that you could eat. I'm not trying to derail, but there is a story about some women in a town who were arrested for poisoning in ancient Rome in like, I don't know, the 600s BC or something, like almost like way, way back. And it was like a group poisoning epidemic. There was a plague in this town and these women were blamed for it. Yes, and they pretty much blamed the women, right. And I think they did execute all those women, if I'm not mistaken. What it said in the sources was that they were punished, but it wasn't specific about what the punishment was. A lot of the time, women convicted of crimes like that were kind of given back to their families to punish as they wished, and sometimes that did involve killing. Or exile and then killing. Like, that's the big thing. I That's the secret I learned with exile. I was like, oh, exile doesn't sound so bad. Like, you know, you just move somewhere else. It's like, no, no. Exile, you were forced to go somewhere else, and then maybe like like a couple months later, someone killed you, for the most part, unless you were Seneca. <laughs> yeah, it's like slow execution. But that was usually for like people in the imperial family and like high-ranking nobles, you know. But anyway, I kind of question now whether that was a situation of women helping other women poison their husbands. <laughs> That's the thing. It might have been, but it also might not have been. And all those women were innocent and there was just oh, something in the well water or something in the crops that year. Like, I can't tell you how many times women get accused of poisoning when they didn't do it. And there was sort of a hysteria and it, not unlike the witch trials where they would just go after a woman who they didn't like or didn't understand in the in the community. Throughout history, there are these different poison manias where, especially among very wealthy or powerful people, whenever anyone would get sick, through natural causes, uh, they would just quickly want to say, oh, they were poisoned. They were poisoned by someone. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the question uh, for Locusta. We were talking about Locusta. Yeah. Like, what was it like researching her and seeing her illustrated? Um, I loved researching her. Uh, it's another one where I'm sure you struggle with this because it's ancient history. It's so hard to know anything for sure. And the chroniclers and the historians have so much say or sway over how we perceive these figures because, you know, a lot of what we know about Locusta comes from Cassius Dio and Suetonius and all of these other ancient writers who were not always the most favorable regarding women and didn't always write about them in the best light. So it's, it's hard to know what's true and what's legend and what's just like the opinion of these men from later on. 
but just what a remarkable story that she's this imperial poisoner. She has this title. She is used to sort of dictate the next emperors in Roman history and everyone's just poisoning each other. And again, when, uh, one of my favorite things was uh, researching these women and then drawing the portraits of them. And so often when it's from the ancient world, there is no visual depiction of them, right? Um, we just have either a written description or in Locusta's case, I don't think I found anything about how she looked. So I had to do a lot of visual research into what a woman from that time period and that place might have looked like, what it might have worn. And then she wasn't royal, but she had an important position. So just trying to piece together what I could um, to kind of form a portrait of her. Um, and I actually really love the portrait I have of her. And I'm looking at it now and I've got a bust on either side. There's Agrippina and there's Nero and there's Claudius at the top. So there's a lot hidden. Like once you know the story, you get to go back in, I hope, and kind of see all of these really specific details and, that are woven into the illustration that I hope make it, that make it intriguing to read in the first place. And then when you read it, you can go back and go, ah, uh, yes, there's that thing that was mentioned and it all comes together. Sorry, Lisa, did you say you illustrated the book? Oh, I did. Oh, my goodness. Can we just stop for a minute? Because the illustrations in this book are incredible. They are so good. <laughs> oh, thank you. They are just incredible. I didn't realize you illustrated. I think I had a separate uh, question about the process of illustrating it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Actually, so I'm, a, I'm an illustration professor, and I'm a professional illustrator by trade. So actually... The research and the writing was the new part of this for me. But I appreciate that you trusted it <laughs> and didn't challenge that part. For me, this began as an illustration series where I was researching these women and drawing portraits of them. And then I pitched it to the publisher. And originally, I was going to work with an author. And then my colleagues said, don't you have a degree in English? And I said, yes. And they said, what if you wrote it? And I went, oh, I don't know. And you know, I sort of hedged on it. And I'm so glad I did now. I've learned so much and I got to this really create this whole piece like it really feels like my baby um, from start to finish because I got to be on kind of every side of it writing it and designing it and researching it and illustrating it it was a lot I'm not gonna <laughs> lie about that this this is my magnum opus but I really enjoyed researching the women and then getting to draw them I think I just got to connect with them in this other way and felt like I was I was meeting them. And I think so often when you read stories like this, you want to look at the person you want to kind of I would always Google them after and try to find an image. I think there's something where we're so intrigued. We want to know more about them as people. So I feel like I got to do that a little bit. That must have been such an incredible process. <laughs> <laughs> Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard, it's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. Um, I wanted to discuss the Visha Kanya. Did I get that correctly? I, I hope so. That's how I've been saying it, too. I hope I've got that correctly. Um, so the Visha Kanya were the legendary poison maidens of India. What research did you do into this story, and how did you parse the fact from the fiction? 
to be honest, they're the most mythological of all of the figures I mentioned in the book. And I knew that they were a little bit tenuous, but it was too good not to include just the legend of these beautiful poison damsels that were used in the service of the emperor. It was too delicious not not to have. But yeah, it, to be honest, I and I repeat throughout that little section, like, legend there's so much of this that's legend there's very little of this that i can prove but yeah in ancient india there were the tales of these Vishakanya, these poisonous damsels who uh, initially it, the story is just that they made themselves immune to poison over time by ingesting small amounts of toxins on a daily basis which is a process called mithridium or mithrat after king mithridates of pontus uh, who did this also the poison king <laughs> The Poison King. Again, what a title. What a, when I found that online, stop the presses. I got it. Like, this is gold. I know. I think it's Adrian Mayer. Yeah, she's just incredible. And that book is amazing. That's the first book I read of hers at the very beginning of our podcast. I talked about Mithridates so much that Jen referred to him as Jenny's boyfriend, Mithridates. <laughs> he did. <laughs> I love that he's your boyfriend. Well, I mean, I'm married to Alaric of the Visigoths, so, you know, <laughs> don't tell him about it because he's stabby. <laughs> we'll keep them separate. She has a Y cheese going on. It's fine. <laughs> I love that for you. <laughs> but uh, yeah and then the legend evolves not that the women can withstand poisonous effects but that the women are themselves poisonous right and that if you touch her or kiss her or anything more scandalous that like you will just die on the spot or your limbs will rot off and the idea of this venomous vixen sort of stays in our cultural consciousness and it exists in many cultures and I think I even bring up like in Batman Poison Ivy this idea of this beautiful dangerous woman and sort of connecting like a sexuality to these sort of uh, dangerous women and they're often depicted and I would encourage you if you've never looked at the sculptures of the Vishakanya that are in India, they are very provocative. Like there are snakes always winding right in between their legs. They're always bare breasted and very voluptuous. And I will say I was very fortunate with this, that I have a colleague at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art, where I teach, who was from India and had a background in art history from India that she had worked on for her master's degree. She was wonderful about letting me consult with her and showing me really direct images and references so that I, again, I, this was one where I needed to talk to an expert because it was so specific and I'm so grateful and I'll give a shout out to my friend Priyanka for that. So thank you so much, Priyanka, for being my go-to source who really helped me out with the, the Visha Kanya section. I've known about them for a long time. I've been so fascinated with them. I was doing research for something and I came across them. I covered them, I think, in the Locusta episode as well, like very briefly. You did. But I, I was doing research for um, like a fiction project is where I saw them first. And I was like, they are just so fascinating. And this idea of an entire woman's body being turned into a weapon in service to the emperor is just next level, you know? <laughs> it, it always made me question, though, because, like, the woman's entire body is poisonous. So I was just like, well, she doesn't actually, because the story is, well, she has sex with you and then you die. <laughs> but she doesn't have to have sex with you to kill you. She, all she has to do is brush you. <laughs> That's one of those things where truth is stranger than fiction. Like, can you believe that this was, you know, something that, well, I don't know how much of it is true and how much of it is legend, but... Just incredible. What a story. 
no, and I, there's some great quotes um, that I gathered in that one. Like, it, you know, if you, she kills a lover just by the touch, her touch or her breath, flowers and blossoms wilt when they come into contact with her head, the bugs in her bed, the lice in her clothes, and anyone who washes in the same water as her all die. Ooh. You would then think that you'd get a clue as to the nature of this woman's power before you had sex with her. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, but you know, it's so much juicier to have that as the sort of like finale of the story. There's a fiction story. I think it's a Nathaniel Hawthorne story about essentially a father who turns his daughter into a poison maiden. There's a suitor for her. And like, it's about how like very slowly he's exposed to the same sort of toxins so that the two of them are only really suited for each other, which sounds really lovely until you realize that like both of them have absolutely no choice in this. Like they do learn like love each other, but like they have no choice and they now have been so exposed to all of these toxins that they can't even interact with the regular world. Couldn't believe it. I read it in, as like a teenager in high school and I was like, this is really cool and super romantic. As an adult, I'm like, this is so problematic. I'm obsessed with this story though. What an idea. Wow. My first thought was how romantic. And then I went and then you said, there's no agency. Oh no. Yeah. Like she has no choice. It's the same thing I think about these poison maidens. Like they're not supernatural creatures. They have no agency here. Yeah. They're human beings. They were selected for this at, at birth. I think they say they were chosen by astrology from when they were children or a very young age. So they didn't choose this life is the other thing. And some of them don't survive the training or the, you know, the poisoning. Oh, I'm sure. Just the, by nature of being exposed to toxins to build up the immunity that some you had to test it. You don't always know what's too much until you... Until you find out the hard way. And I also think by astrology read, they were obviously picking girls who had a certain look that they considered desirable. So weird people were looking at young children going, you're going to be a pretty adult. Sorry, I take it to the dark place. <laughs> no, but I think we, sh but that's the nuance I'm talking about. That's what I want. I want to be like, what is cool about this that we're so drawn to and obsessed with and fascinated by that has stood the test of time that we still talk about it. And what's wrong with it? <laughs> you know, and how those both, both things can be true. Absolutely. Yeah. That's kind of where we live in, in the ancient world and the work we do. So, um, so should we talk about Sally Bassett? She is so fascinating. We'd never heard of her before. Um, can you tell our listeners about this remarkable woman? Yes. And thank you just for bringing that point up. I think when I do get asked who is my favorite, I often say, oh, it's so hard. They're all my babies, my poisonous, poisonous babies. But um, I think Sally Bassett really stands out. Um, as being a, a more empathetic figure, a more heroic figure. So Sally Bassett uh, was an enslaved woman in Bermuda during the 18th century, which tells you a lot right away about the no agency. She had talk about no agency over her life, horrible living conditions and poor treatment her whole life. And um, she allegedly gave her granddaughter, who was also enslaved, poison to use against her enslavers. And uh, she was arrested and found guilty by a jury of all white men um, and sentenced to burn at the stake um, like a witch, which was sort of unnecessary also and was not a popular um, method of execution at the time. They really wanted to drive home that she was this satanic witch. But the story of her defiance kind of spread through the area and may have led to other uh, slave revolts um, inspired by Sally Bassett and her story. And she became a very important 
figure in Bermudian legend that from her ashes sort of uh, sprung up these special purple flowers now called Bermudiana, which is the, the flower of Bermuda. And there's a sculpture of her. And it's the only sculpture of an enslaved person that I'm aware of in Bermuda. Um, but it's an amazing story that nobody knows about. And I think that was what broke my heart the most was, and I'm so grateful actually um, to the podcast Criminalia. I don't know if you're familiar with them who wrote the foreword for my book, but they had also done an episode on Sally Bassett. And I was just so excited to hear more about her and her story. Because when we think about women poisoners, I think we think of the big... You know, we think of Lucretia Borgia, we think of Catherine de' Medici, but we don't think of women who were enslaved or women of color. And I think it's so important that we get those stories too. I, I, I think she's a, a really meaningful figure in the book who used poison as a, a means of agency and as a means of, of defiance. You know, it's self-defense, basically. And, and protection, you know. She became a sort of a folk hero in her in her world, in her community, and that her legend lives on, that they still, a hot day, they still call, oh, it's a real Sally Bassett day on a really hot day. But that's still like a common turn of phrase, I think is so fascinating. Let's talk Lucretia Borgia. She is one of the flashiest of poisoners, perhaps the person we think about the most when we're talking about lady poisoners, unless you're me and you think Locusta. Can you tell us what it was like to be at one of her dinner parties? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Um, so when I started researching this book, I think I put on social media, who do, who do you think of when you think of women poisoners? And I think like 90% of all of the answers were Lucretia Borgia. And I was like, okay, she's gonna be my star. Like I, I remember I got this like 600 page biography on Lucretia Borgia. And I said, okay. And I got this highlighter out. And I was like, every time I see the word poison, I'm gonna highlight it. And then the word poison never happened. And it was so deeply frustrating and, uh, for me personally. And I think I learned a really valuable lesson about legacy and the way we assign these poisonous attributes to w women in history when it's true or not true. The Borgias, of course, this powerful family dynasty. The name is sort of synonymous with power and intrigue and definitely with poison. She's the illicit daughter of a pope. And there's this the famous rumor about her that has persisted through the centuries is that she was this beautiful blonde femme fatale who wore this ring with a hollow compartment that contained a space for poison. And not just any poison, her family's special brand of poison called La Cantarella. The Borgias had their own special family brand, which I love, and that she would pour into the drinks of her family's enemies at the dinner parties. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side of the poison vial you're standing on, there is no evidence to support that. Um, and that she may really have been a victim of a bad reputation. A lot of historians have since really changed their opinion on the Borgias, that they weren't that dissimilar from other very powerful families of the time. And Lucretia in particular now is often just seen either as a pawn, more just used in the larger schemings of her father and brother, or just as a, a strong, powerful, capable woman in her own right, which is something that's so rarely talked about. But again, that stain of the word poisoner has really just stayed on her. And it was definitely uh, a surprise. That was the biggest surprise for me in my research is that there was no evidence to support that she ever poisoned anyone. That's so interesting, too, because like her story, the way that 
it's typically told is so interesting. You know, like this idea of this woman who's very powerful, very beautiful, and just this absolute power player with this ability to poison, you know, and total ruthlessness about it is something that draws me in. I mean, I'm just so interested, you know, but I'm also interested in the version where she doesn't do that, but is still all of those things. Yeah. And I I highly recommend uh, the, I'm trying to find the title of the book. It was Lucretia Borgia, Life, Love and Death in Renaissance Italy uh, by Sarah Bradford was the, the primary reference I used on that. And she led a fascinating life in her own right. Her father just kept trying to marry her off to whoever seemed like would be the most powerful or impressive suitor. And like three different times he married her off in Catholic patriarchal Renaissance Italy. So I'm guessing those husbands died each time. (laughs) Well, uh, one they annulled on the grounds of impotence, which the, the male's family really did not appreciate. Um, one was definitely murdered. And then I think the third, I, I, I can't remember, but that's the one she actually like she loves and it works out. But she dies. She dies very young in childbirth uh, at 39. Wow. that That is so sad and unfortunately so common. I was going to say there's a really great show that I watched a while ago called The Borgias with I think Jeremy Irons is is the pope and it's just great and debauched and excellent. I remember this, the plot line with the first husband who was declared impotent and he was this warrior in the show, at least, you know, this like military guy, very powerful, very abusive. And um, it was just like re- a real um, slap in the face that he wound up having to have his marriage annulled for impotence. And at like 15, as I remember, and it's been a while since I watched the show, she was, I think, young, you know, like 15 or something in the show. And she kind of orchestrated all of that, which it just like the portrayal, like she's she was probably like that, regardless of the poison. <laughs> so let's talk about Belganis. She is well outside of the purview of our podcast, but I am still petitioning to cover her one day. I love her. She is a very, I would say, modernish serial killer. Can you tell us about this lady poisoner and serial killer? No, I love that you have a personal <laughs> propension for Pelicaness. I remember it was like, oh, it's the ancient history. Okay, let me go back, brush up on my ancient history. So I love that you asked about Pelicaness. Hers is one of the stories that I think haunts me the most. Like it's one of the most devastating and dark she is in, I want to say, Victorianish era Indiana, uh, but she's originally a Norwegian immigrant to the United States. And she just has this pension. She loves money. And there's a lot of talk of her fixation on money and trying to accumulate wealth. She has this habit of collecting life insurance payouts from fires and the deaths of her husbands. And uh, my favorite part about all of this is that she uses the life insurance money from the death of her first husband to buy this grand, massive farm in Indiana. And she puts this uh, advertisement out into Norwegian language newspapers, basically saying, wealthy, comely widow seeks to adjoin fortunes with a handsome Norwegian-American bachelor. And the best line of, <laughs> of this like um, personal ad that she's posting is, triflers need not apply and i want to embroider (laughs) that on a pillow i want that like triflers need not apply i'm gonna put that on my next dating profile (laughs) please do i think it's like the boldest move and it worked she was like sending out like so many she had so many pen pals and she really tapped into something with 
people who missed the cuisine, their language of home. And she was offering this to other Norwegian men. And she would write to them and tell them that she had fallen in love. And it's sort of like a, what we might see today is like a contemporary like dating scam where she says she was a Tinder swindler. Catfishing. She's H.H. Holmes. She's like a female H.H. Holmes. Well, I mean, she was real, but she was just a murderess. And come visit me. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Sell all of your possessions. Get the money. Sew it into your underpants. um, And come see me as soon as you can. And there was this parade of men who came to visit her and then were never seen leaving. And she would just be seen wearing their boots and their coats around her farm and she acquired a great deal of, of wealth doing this over and over. And eventually, there was when she was almost caught or when she was afraid of getting caught, there was this massive fire uh, to her whole barn, um, which, by the way, included her, her children uh, that she adopted, lived in the barn with her as, and the home with her as well. And the great mystery, and I almost hate to spoil it because it's so good, is there was a headless corpse found in the debris of the fire that doesn't fit her proportions and so the question is did she die in this fire with everyone else was it an accident or did she set this fire find a body double decoy and escape and nobody knows it's like the biggest mystery people claim to have seen her for like decades after but none of those stories were ever corroborated and uh she's just a particularly dark like when we talk about sally bassett and we can have empathy and appreciation for what she did like bella ganesh not only did she like lure these men she murdered them she poisoned them then she bludgeoned them and hacked them to pieces and buried the pieces in gunny sacks in her hog lot um she's just a monster like i can't even believe i said those words out loud it's so unbelievable but she i i mean i think we don't have didn't have the word at the time, but just a, a sociopath, someone who had no respect for other human life. It's totally the other end of the spectrum, right? In certain circumstances, you can really empathize and be like, you know, that is that is the only option this person had. And of course, they're going to do this. Whereas this is not one of those situations. No, no, like I, I cannot put a nice little twist on this one. This is a this is a person who was evil, you know, for all intents and purposes. And There was no nuance to the story where we can see her in another better light. I think that she's just a monster. Jenny and I talk all the time if we ever have any spare time about having a a separate history podcast about this particular time period. And Jenny wants to look at sort of like uh, cowboys in the West and like outlaws. I was like, I need to have my girl Belle Guinness, my man H.H. Holmes. I love that. <laughs> Jen just wants to talk about 18th century serial killers or 19th century serial killers in the United States. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's so fascinating. What a genre. And they just got away with so much but the time period they were ahead of the laws they were ahead of the science like it really was to bring your topic in it was kind of the wild west for murder like there was just no like it was so hard especially murders by poison and that's another theme of the book were so hard to prove that it it's it's sort of a story where i think in the end the scientists end up being the heroes the field of toxicology didn't really exist until the end of the 19th century A lot of people think it started sooner than that, but it really doesn't. Like people would just have to take their best guess when it was a suspected poisoning murder because no one ever witnessed that. The poisoner would take great care to make sure no one ever saw them administer the poison. So all you have is a person who got very sick very suddenly. And in these time periods where that was not abnormal from cholera or dysentery, other common diseases of the time, 
uh, it was very hard to prove. And also, you didn't have to be there when the person got sick. Like, that's the great thing with poison. You could be halfway across the country doing something else. Your alibi is already made in for you. Oh, yeah. And that's sort of the extra sinister part is you don't have to be there for the murder. You can sort of do it and walk away. And it's almost it's cowardly in some ways, but it's also from a criminal standpoint, a little bit genius. You can, you know, I was far. I was the caregiver. I made their medicine. You know, I served their food. There's a, a disconnect. You know, it doesn't have the violence or the physical action that you might have in, in other more more physical types of murder that I think there's a darkness to poisoning. You don't have to do anything that dramatic. And I bet it's psychologically maybe easier to wrap your head around it. I don't know. I have not tried. (laughs) If you were to poison someone, which poison would you pick? Okay, I really appreciate it's not who who would you off. I was afraid it was going to go there. So really interesting question. Um, Obviously, uh, and for the record, uh, I I would never condone any harm or murder of any human being. It is depraved and unnecessary in all circumstances. But and also, as I say all the time, modern forensics and science will catch you pretty quickly. So, you know, it's all hypothetical. (laughs) This is all hypothetical. But in terms of what my favorite types of poisons are, arsenic is definitely the like king of many of these stories. It's probably the most popular. But I personally, and maybe you'll appreciate this, I really resonate with the plant poisons. The all natural. All natural. I thought some of the research into the plants were some of my favorite into your belladonnas and your nightshades. And so fascinating the history of how many of these plants both have medicinal purposes when used in small amounts by a physician, but the same thing can be poison. And that's one of my favorite quotes from Paracelsus. The the dose makes the poison. You know, it's the amount of the same thing in a small quantity can be healing and in a large quantity can kill you. But I find I find the, the botanical poisons are probably the most fascinating to me personally. Which botanical poison would you use? Oh, you want ah, a specific one? I sure do, because we covered this with Lacusta, so I actually know some of them. <laughs> I know which one Jenny will use. Wait, tell, what's, which one is Jenny will, will, will Jenny use? Jenny will use the the one that looks like blueberries. Don't ever let Jenny make you blueberry pancakes. I don't remember exactly which one that is. <laughs> it's it's belladonna, and I think that might have been my favorite one too. Um, means beautiful lady in Italian, and it might refer to the refer to the practice of uh, women in the Renaissance squeezing the juice of the berry into their eyes because it made their pupils large and shining. But it was also toxin and poison, and they were putting it directly in their eyes. And they were probably high, you know. <laughs> and they were probably high. It's actually uh, in small amounts. It's still used by ophthalmologists today when we get an eye exam to dilate the pupils. But it's, it's like a beautiful uh, plant. They're like these bright blackberries and these lovely little white and purple flowers and uh, unfortunately it's very dangerous because they do look like blueberries and you'll get the worst reports of poisoning for me are the accidents uh, where someone thought it was something it wasn't I think that's up there I think hemlock's up there just because of Socrates and I do love the opium poppy I think what a what a beautiful flower to be so dangerous um, and foxglove all of the lovely lore about foxglove and they're all like fairy thimbles or like all of these lovely little things. I lived in um in the UK for about 16 years. And when I saw foxglove, I was like, isn't that really poisonous? And Glenn's like, that is super poisonous. I was like, but it's just growing. Anyone could just like touch it or take it or sniff it. Or 
He's like, yeah, I know. Just leave the foxglove alone, Jen. (laughs) Yeah, you'd be surprised at how many common garden plants are actually poisonous. Yeah, there was a story that that I found um, when I was doing the Locusta the Poisoner episode, and it was one of these plants, and I I think it might have been wolfsbane, which is also aconite. I could be wrong on that, but very, very poisonous plant. There was like a story about somebody in the 80s or 60s or, you know, fairly recently. I don't remember exactly the date was a gardener on this estate and there was some of this plant just in the garden or it was a weed or something and he touched it with his bare hands and died like very quickly afterwards and it just shows you how deadly these plants can still be oh yes also uh when the next time you're in the uk there is a famous poison garden it's not in london it's i remember because i tried to find it as well and now i can't think of the name of course is it the one that's up by Scotland, up on the border? That might be it. I have to, I'd have to remember the name. But you can go on a tour, but you have to be, you're not allowed to touch anything. You're not allowed to sniff anything. People do faint on the tour. Jenny, we're going. This needs to be something we do. <laughs> what a fun friend date. <laughs> Lisa, you're invited too. We'll all go. <laughs> Let's have a, a romp in the poison garden. A picnic. Jen and I have so many fun friend dates planned. Another one is to go to Pompeii and walk all the way to Herculaneum and see if we could have made it in time before the eruption. <laughs> we have to make it to, I think it's Naples. We, it's, yeah, it's Naples. We have to walk from Pompeii to Naples in the time period before the pyroclastic flow would have sort of demolished each different area on the way. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I hope you make it. I think you have between 10 in the morning and 2 p.m. to make it past Herculaneum, I think. I forget. We're like, we have to see if we would actually, if this is possible. Would we have survived? (laughs) Would we particularly have survived Pompeii? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. I please do all of these fun dates and then like record them and share them in like a blog or something. Stream them. (laughs) Just like lie. I want to be like, I'm rooting for them. They almost made it to the Naples. Oh no, they would have been ash. Okay, I don't know. Like, oh, ancient history fangirl is out for the count. <laughs> it's been a good run. <laughs> Who do you think was the most successful poisoner? How do you define success? Success meaning that's up to you. <laughs> I guess got away with it. (laughs) Body count. Yeah, I was going to say murdered the most people for the most period of time um, or accomplished the most with the least effort. I unfortunately, so everyone in this book was captured, uh, was caught. And I think one of the most horrifying thoughts is uh, that there are probably many women poisoners and poisoners in general who we will never know about because they, they they got away with it. They didn't get caught. They stopped when they were ahead. And, you know, they did their one or two poisonings and moved on. And, you know, a lot of these women, I think in many ways, they, they all failed in the sense that they got caught. But in terms of success, you got to appreciate the ones who do it for almost altruistic reasons, who do it to like better their life circumstances or to free themselves from abuse. Just on, on moral grounds. I think they're the only ones you can really uh, appreciate in that way. But in terms of like pure depravity, which is another important way to assess these figures, you got to give it to your serial poisoners. Um, and a lot of them are in my money and greed chapter because they get the payout and then the money runs out and they do it again and they don't get caught. And it becomes uh, these horrible cycles where they just keep poisoning. Um, and that's where you get your Bella Ganesses and your Marianne Cottons 
and uh, Yiya Morano of Argentina, who's uh, one of my favorites too. Yeah. Oh, Amy Archer Gilligan, who ran the the home for older people for old folks. Oh yeah, I know that one. Yeah, had a bad business model where she only got more money when people died, so she had a new room for future uh, people to stay in the home. Bad, bad business model. Uh, and she was like, well, guess I got to poison someone. Most of them achieve success in different ways. But uh, I like criminals don't don't prosper. And for the most part in these stories, uh, they do get caught and they do face justice. These are not heroes for the most part. Uh, these are not women we should be looking up to or admiring. But yeah, they, there's a lot of them who I think had success for a short time and then were caught. So what are you working on next? I, I don't know yet. <laughs> I don't have a plan. I'm kind of just seeing what happens with this book in the world. I hope, I, I know I definitely want to do another book. If you or your listeners have an obvious like, ooh, you know what you should do next is blah, blah. Feel free to like tell me that. I, I'm curious to see what the reception to this book is and if there's sort of an obvious next step. I think I'm a little poisoned out. But I definitely think more historical and more potentially crime, potentially, or just like interesting stories or phenomena, especially things you want to see with this sort of approach where it is both researched and written and highly illustrated and sort of in this very decoratively opulent visual package, which seems to be my MO. But yeah, I'm still waiting. My editor and I, she's like, We'll talk later. She's like, enjoy this part. And I'm like, but everyone's asking what's next. Take your time because you'll be living with it for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the other th I'm a professor and I actually go on sabbatical next year. So it's like the perfect time to write another book. Oh, yeah. You got till next year to think about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Next fall, fall of 24. You can. <laughs> that's when I'll be in the in the writing cave, research cave. We also have a writing cave. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I live in that cave. The art cave, the writing cave. Where can people find you on social media if they have thoughts and want to tell you what to work on next? And they probably will. Please do. I I love hearing from people about this. Like this was just in my mind for years and years. And it's like so thrilling to see it in the world now and to see people react, to see people talking about like even the fact that you know all these stories and all these names. I was like, oh, my gosh, like I lived alone with all of these characters for so long. It's so thrilling. Like I want to have I there was no one I could have these conversations with. So I'm just so thrilled. Um, please find me on social media. I definitely use Instagram the most. I use my last name online primarily, which is Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N. And I go by Made by Perrin on all of my, my platforms on Instagram and Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Or uh, It's Twitter. I'm refusing to call it X. Not calling it X, no. <laughs> okay, I stand with you on that. If you take pictures with the book, I, I'm really just excited to like have these conversations and to talk to folks who, who are reading the book. So yes, do find me there. I'd be thrilled. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been so fantastic. <laughs> thank you. I've, I've had a blast. This was so much fun. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you all next week. Hold up. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.